At one of our church picnics several years ago, a tug-of-war competition took place. Each of the teams gathered on their respective sides. As you know about tug-of-war, there's always a line in the middle. So each, each team was on their side, and they all worked as one, pulling together in the same direction. They had the same mind. They had the same attitude. They had the same perspective to drag that other team across that line and be victorious in the tug-of-war. Well, I can't tell you, I can't remember which side won, but that event is memorialized in a photograph on our website. And so I challenge you to get on our website and look for that tug-of-war photo and see who's in it. But that photograph on our website was put there for a purpose. Because as I looked at it, I thought, if, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then that picture says a great deal about unity in the church. Believers coming together as one in a tug of war. And yesterday, I had the privilege of being a part of a team that came together in a tug-of-war of sorts, a team here at Covenant that came together to pull in the same direction, with the same mind, the same attitude, the same purpose, to pray against the sin of abortion, to pray for the mercy and compassion of the Lord to be upon those women, most of whom were young, that we saw leave that abortion clinic yesterday, as no doubt at some point in their life, they will struggle with the disastrous effects of having agreed to the killing of their baby. So we are in a tug of war as a church. The battle is before us. We are opposed as a church. God's word is opposed in our culture. The kingdom is under assault, always has been, since Genesis chapter 3, and always will be until the Lord Jesus comes home, as Kevin reminded us to pray. Come, Lord Jesus. We're in a tug of war. Just like the Philippians, we're in a tug of war. And what is essential as we come together as a church, I believe what's essential as we come together as a church is unity. Unity and truth. We were able to recite together the Nicene Creed. Why? Because we have the same mind about the Word of God. We agree on what God's Word says. And we're to have the same attitude of harmony, the same purpose, the same mind about what is the purpose of the church, about advancing the kingdom of God here on earth, bringing glory and honor to our Lord. We're in a tug of war. And what's important, there are many things that are important, but for today, what Paul tells us is important 
is unity. And he tells us something else. What is essential to unity? And it's this. An attitude of humility that translates into actions of humble service. Did you get that? What Paul says is important. What was important for the Philippians and what is important for us today with regards to being the church who is opposed is unity. Many things important, but chief among them is unity. And what is essential to unity is an attitude of humility that translates into actions of humble service. And that is our theme for today. In fact, the Apostle Paul ends chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, talking about the theme of unity. He exhorts the Philippians, as you remember when we studied that some weeks ago, that they are to walk worthy of the gospel, walk worthy of being united to Christ in saving faith by standing firm together in the face of the opposition that was set before them. And also standing firm together in unity because of the suffering that had befell them. And so the Apostle Paul continues on that theme of unity now in chapter 2. Providentially, we're going to divide this broader section of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 into two Sundays. Today, we'll, we will be looking at verses 1 through 4, united in humility. And then next week, Palm Sunday, again providential because it's, it, I'm really excited about preaching on Ephesians 2, 5 through 11 on Palm Sunday because it's that, that glorious passage where there Christ really shows us what true humility looks like. That the King of Glory condescended down to the, into the trough of humiliation, humbling himself even to death, death on a cross, and then he is exalted back to the right hand of the Father. So next week we'll get to the second part of this this two-part message on the broader context, Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, as, as, as we look at our inspiration for humility. It's the Lord Jesus. He shows us and he inspires us to be humble. But for today, we want to look at this united in humility and look at three things. The grounds of Paul's appeal, the attitude of of humility, and then thirdly, the actions or the acts of humble service. So let us go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive in and read this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, you show us what humility looks like, and yet the, the quality and the depth of your, humili your humility we can never, ever meet but we can aspire to it, we could be inspired by it. And today I pray that you would work in us that we might see that you call us to grow more and more in an attitude of humility that translates into actions of humble service. So work in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read the entire passage, 1 through 11. We'll read it again next week because this really is a unit. And I don't know that we could ever read Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 too much. It's just a glorious passage of Scripture. We'll begin to verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect reviving the soul and may it revive our souls this very day. The essential element in unity is humble service flowing from a humble attitude. And Paul develops this theme by first beginning with establishing the grounds for his appeal that we'll see in verse 2. We have made a number of financial appeals to you for special offerings over the years. And these appeals are primarily to meet special needs that, that have arisen. Well, why would we come to you over and over again and make appeals for you to give money for this, that, or the others? Because we have biblical grounds for doing so. God's people are called to be generous. God is a giver, and we're to be a giver. The Word of God calls us to support the work of the church. The Word of God calls us to care for the brethren who are in need. The Word of God calls us to be about the business of supporting mission throughout the world. So when we come to you to ask for money for a specific need, we have grounds to do so in God's Word. The Apostle has already exhorted the Philippians in chapter 1 to walk worthy of being united to Christ by standing firm together in unity as they face opposition and endure suffering. And so he begins verse 1 of chapter 2 with so or therefore as the NIV translates. And what Paul is saying there by using that little word so is he's, he's telling us that the theme of verses 27 through 30 in chapter 1 will continue now into chapter 2, the theme of unity. And he starts out by giving four grounds for making this appeal to the Philippians to grow in unity. And two of these grounds are related to Christ, and two of these grounds 
are related to the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you look at verses 1 through 2, you'll see what seems to be a conditional statement. Paul begins verse 1 with so, but then he goes right to so if. Anytime you see if, and then a little bit later what looks like then, that's a, condi- a conditional statement. And it would be easy for us to, to take Paul saying that he has some doubt if these realities that he'll talk about with regards to grounds is really part of the Philippians' spiritual life. But that's not the case at all. The Apostle Paul is not doubting that the Philippians have these things. He's simply using this conditional statement as a literary device to get the Philippians to think about their spiritual walk and to evaluate their lives, to ask, are these things really growing in me? And by the way, we should be doing the same thing. In other words, we should be evaluating, are these realities that describe one who's united to Christ in saving faith really part of my life? That's what he's doing here. The sense is not so much so if, but so since. You get it? Paul is assuming that these qualities are experienced by the Philippians, but he's wanting them to really think about it and to do some soul searching. So here are the four grounds. The first ground, since you have encouragement. I think a better translation is since you have consolation. Since you are consoled by Christ. In Luke chapter 2, we see a wonderful statement by Simeon, who was there in the temple waiting for the Christ child to come, that helps us understand consolation. Remember Simeon, he is waiting for what? The consolation of Israel to come. Jesus is that consolation. Jesus is the one who brings comfort to God's people. Jesus is the one who brings relief to God's people. Christ has brought comfort and relief to weary sinners by redeeming them. And for the the disciple who is redeemed, Christ continually brings comfort and consolation to us as weary disciples, as we are seeking to follow him. In this, and especially, Paul uses consolation here, reflecting back to chapter 1, where there he says, where he speaks of the spiritual battle that the Philippians have on their hands. And you know as well as I do that when we're in the heat of the spiritual battle, there's nothing like the consoling work of Jesus Christ to flood our hearts. Since you have consolation. Secondly, since you are comforted from love. Now listen, believers, we love one another, don't we? And and we comfort one another with brotherly love and sisterly love. And that's what we're called to do. But I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. The love between brothers and sisters. I think what he's referring to here is the love of Christ. That comforts us. I just want to read a passage of Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us 
and gave us eternal comfort. You see, love and comfort coming together. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And you know as well as I do, when we're in the heat of the spiritual battle, we not only need the consoling comfort of Jesus, we not only need him to come and bring us relief, but we need his love just to pour over us in comfort. That's what Paul was saying to the Philippians. Man, you not only have the consoling work of Jesus, but as one united to Christ, you have his love. And then thirdly, since you participate in the Spirit, now Paul shifts from the work of Christ to the work of the Spirit. You participate in the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to you at your conversion. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit? But the, and the Holy Spirit does has a broad ministry, but chief and foremost amongst those ministries of the Holy Spirit is he applies the saving benefits of Christ to the church. And here Paul is saying, hey, listen, one of the, the third ground on which I'm making this appeal is that you have the Spirit. And he has applied the saving work of Christ to you. And fourthly, since you experience sympathy and comfort. And here I think the Apostle Paul is simply referring to the work of the Spirit that, that brings comfort and sympathy that continually works in us. He's called the comforter. That's the translation of paraclete when it's applied to the Holy Spirit. Consolation, Christ's love, the Holy Spirit applying the saving benefits of Christ, the work of the Spirit in our sanctification, comforting us, showing us sympathy, growing us. The four grounds that Paul have has laid here point to the fact that every person united to Christ experiences these four realities. And he challenges the Philippians to do a little bit of a spiritual inventory. If we are in union with Christ, these four things will be realities. And if these four things, now get this, if these four things are realities, then the only conclusion is what Paul says in verse 2. Do you get that? If these four things are realities because of your union with Christ, then necessarily what I say in verse 2 must be true of you as well. And what does he say in verse 2? The essential element in unity is humble service flowing from a humble attitude. Paul begins by developing this theme as he's laying out the grounds for this appeal. And now he makes this appeal in verse 2. He makes this appeal in verse 2 for the, for the Philippians to grow in this essential component of unity, which is an attitude of humility. We have biblical grounds for making financial appeals to you. And we make financial appeals to you. In more recent days, we came to you and made an appeal for you to contribute to, to the, the ministry of Caring Hearts, a, a pro-life ministry here in Little Rock. 
And a little while back, we came to you and made an appeal for you to give money. So military Bible sticks, Bible in audio form on those little sticks could be purchased and distributed to our church members and others related to our church that are in the military. And right after Easter, we're coming to you again with an appeal to give money. And it's going to be for you to give money so that the war as short-term mission trip can buy the needed supplies so that we can hold these Bible camps the four nights that we are down working with Scott and Kathy Craig in Juarez, Mexico. We may have 10 kids show up. We may have 400. And so we'll come to you and we'll make a specific appeal. Having stated the grounds, now the Apostle Paul makes a specific appeal. And the specific appeal in verse 2 seems odd. Paul says, complete my joy. <laughs> that doesn't sound very humble to me. Complete my joy. But in reality, what Paul is saying here is much more than just simply make me happy. Because as we discussed in chapter 1, there we talked about Paul's joy being inseparably connected to the Philippians' spiritual growth. The more joy Paul has, the more he sees the Philippians growing spiritually and so really what the apostle Paul is saying here is to make my joy complete I appeal to you to grow spiritually to continue to mature in unity and what is essential for you to continue to mature in unity is to have an attitude of humility and then Paul goes on in verse 2 that he appeals to the Philippians to mature in unity by having an attitude of humility when he says, by being of the same mind, verse 2. He does not mean uniformity of thought, but, but rather be like-minded in an attitude of love, of true selfless love, of true sacrificial love, of true put others before me love. By the way, a love that is likened to the very love that Christ has when he voluntarily agreed to come down from heaven and love us by dying on a cross that we are to have that that same mind that same attitude the Philippians are to have the same type of love as Christ and if we have the same quality, the same type, the same genre of love as Christ, this, the sacrificial, sacrificial, other-centered, self-sacrificing love, then what is going to result from that? Being in full accord will have harmony. Get a bunch of people together who have the attitude of loving others, you're going to have harmony. And that's to be true in the church. And further it will result in their being of one mind, that they will have the same disposition, attitude, and outlook. And as, as we'll see next week, this same type of attitude is what caused Jesus to come down from heaven and humble himself, even to become obedient to the point of death. 
Being of the same mind means having an attitude of humility. That's Paul's point here. So Paul appeals for unity founded on the attitude of humility. In light of our union with Christ, the only conclusion, if those four grounds are true in your life, the only conclusion, the only result, is like Paul told the Philippians, we're to have an attitude of humility. The essential element of unity is humble service flowing from a humble attitude. Paul furthered his theme by laying those four grounds and by showing the Philippians that what is essential to growing in unity is an attitude of humility. And if we have an attitude of humility, then we will respond with humble service. We have grounds to make financial appeals. We have made financial appeals. We will make financial appeals to you. And what just is a joy to my heart is that whenever we have made a financial appeal to you, you've always responded with exactly what is needed. I just remember the first time we did to feed the funnel, we needed, oh, a couple of thousand dollars, wasn't it, Bruce? I can't remember. And we just simply made an appeal. We got three or $4,000 from you. Now, we use that money for feed the funnel. But you, you respond. An appeal demands a response. You get it? And Paul shows that the right attitude of humility translates into a response of humble service. Before we go further, let's define humility. Huell Jones defines humility as in this way, humility is basically that mentality which genuinely regards others as being more important and valuable than oneself. It is not abject servility, as the Greeks thought, but dignified service of others which characterizes God himself. And so Paul shows us what humble actions are not so that he can emphasize what humble actions are. And you will see this in verses 3 and 4. Negative and positive. Three negatives, two positives. Unfortunately, we often see the, the opposite of humility in government. Take any government at any level and any government leader, and you may likely see a government leader who has his, uh, her, uh, who has their agenda and they will advance it at the expense of the governed. You might find a government leader that will think of themselves superior as part of a ruling class to those whom he or she governs. And then you might find a government official who is preoccupied, if not obsessed, with keeping power, and they'll do anything to get reelected. I think this is true of our government, of any government. What does Paul say? The negatives, verses 3 through 4, Paul shows what actions do not flow from an attitude of humility, that attitude described in verse 2. These negative actions are natural to man. A genuine, humble attitude does not result in selfishly advancing one's ambition or agenda. Verse 3, 
it is not my agenda and so important I'll take advantage of people to advance it that's not humility from a humble attitude a genuine humble attitude does not translate into being conceited being prideful boastful feeling superior to others and a humble attitude does not result in someone being obsessed with their own interests. I am so obsessed with my financial well-being that there's no way in the world I'm going to reach deep down in my pockets and pull out anything to give to meet your need. Because <laughs> my interest is exactly that, my interest. That's not from a humble attitude. Those are negatives. But then he goes to positive actions here. Also in verses 3 and 4, the one action that is positive is the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. Paul says in verse 3, in humility, count others more significant. Paul, Paul is reflecting here on the, on the character of meekness that, that we find in, in the Beatitudes that we even prayed in our, conf, in our con, corporate confession of sin. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, those who are gentle and do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas and promote their own in, in, importance. Count others more significant than yourself, Paul says. And then, then the other positive quality, what a humble attitude brings about, is someone who is not obsessed with their own interests. Now listen, it's natural for us to be concerned with our own, our own interests. But Paul is talking about being obsessed with our own interests to the exclusion of being concerned about anybody else's interests. And, and he says, watch out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here Paul is warning about this obsession with one's own interests. And so the Apostle Paul, in this section of Scripture, says the essential element in unity is humble service flowing from a humble attitude. Now, I just want to end with just, just one story that really is meaningful to me. I'm going to tell you this story. You're going to think, good grief, couldn't you come up with something more significant than a chocolate bar? No. At a function here at Covenant, where some of us church members were part of, and some, and some other folks, one of the families bought a bunch of these gourmet chocolate bars from Colorado. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I love dark chocolate. And I love the highest cacao content you can possibly put in dark chocolate. 90% plus. I, I just love it. I don't like that 60, even 70% marginal in my judgment. That, that 90, 95% uh, cacao chocolate bar with a cup of coffee, I mean, it'll, it'll be in heaven. I'm, I'm convinced. Hey, listen, I got, I, got, I got a word this week. He brews coffee. You know who you are that sent me that. Bless your soul. 
And so here, all these chocolates are out there. I was feverishly looking for 90, 95% chocolate. I, I knew they had some there, but I was kind of late to the game, and, and all the, the good chocolate had been taken. I wound up with a 60% chocolate bar, and I was still looking and just kind of looking around, and a church member came up to me and said, Hey, Tim, I know you want dark chocolate, and I want you to have mine. It's 90% cacao. 90%. And he gave it to me. An attitude of humility. Not selfish ambition. I want my chocolate. (laughs) He gave up what was his for me. His agenda was not self but other. His love was not self-centered. It was sacrificial. Listen, we can, come all, uh, we can come up with all kinds of stories about incredible actions of humble service. Let me tell you something. The most profound actions of humble service take place in the mundane, the normal affairs of life. The simple things. This individual probably doesn't remember giving me his chocolate. I hope he, do, I hope he, I hope he does. But I remember because it spoke volumes to me about an attitude of humility as Paul describes it here translating into a humble action let's pray Father I pray that you would grow us in in light of our being in union with the Lord Jesus and saving faith Lord grow us in a humble attitude that will result in more and more humble service for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.